Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Lewin Thompson, Chief Executive of Forget Me Not Children's Hospice. Lewin, hello. Hello. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? It's such a big word, that, isn't it? And I think Mm -hmm. it means lots of things in different situations. In my situation in the hospice, as a charitable organization, it means setting out a vision, communicating that to a very wide range of stakeholders, including people who are going to fund the work, people who are going to benefit from the work, people who are going to deliver the work, and very specifically, volunteers who add a lot of capacity to what we're doing and bringing them along uh, with your idea of how things are going to work and ensuring that on that journey, you can be really flexible to adapt to the different situations that you find yourself in day to day, month to month and year to year. Now, your specific situation, you work within an, uh, a sector which is obviously very serious uh, and must provide uh, quite a lot of uh, emotional strain and stress uh, to your workforce. How do you keep them going on a day to day basis? Um, I think there's a mix of things. Um, There is something around ensuring that your workforce can be as resilient as it's possible to be. And that involves understanding what their needs are in that respect and making sure that we resource that. So we have resilience coaches, for example, that come and work with our staff. It's also about recognizing times when your staff need a break or need a little bit of something else. And it's also about ensuring that whatever goes on in your workforce um, and in your workplace, people can come to work and actually do some stuff that's fun as well. Mm -hmm. So um, interestingly, a hospice, a children's hospice in particular, isn't always about people dying. It's about providing the best life opportunities that you can for children when they are with you. So we do do a lot of really fun stuff. So I think we try very hard to get the balance right between the very emotional stuff um, and the stuff that's good and fun and entertaining and actually help families get the most out of their lives when they can. Well, that's uh, absolutely incredible. Um, And uh, I'd like to uh, personally thank you for what uh, you and your organization do. Um, But if we could uh, step away uh, from the specifics of what you do for a moment, and let's go back to a point in your earlier life or your earlier career. Um, Would you say that there was a leader that you personally worked for or with that's impacted the way that you lead today? Yes, I, I would definitely say that's the case. And I think as you you model your career over um, a period of time, and um, I've been working for about 35 years now following um, graduating from university, you, you work with people and you always see good and bad in people, don't you? Mm. And you try and take the good stuff with you and help that shape your own leadership style. And you learn from the stuff that hasn't particularly worked for you or other people around you. And you kind of make 
sometimes subconscious decisions about not wanting to behave in that way, not wanting to be like that person, not wanting to make people feel like that person might have made you feel. And I think as you go along, you learn all of those things and you start to shape the way that you want to do things and you want to deliver things. And some of that has to be born out of experience because you can't learn it all in the textbook. You must be very conscious of this when you are uh, influencing your uh, younger members of staff. What advice uh, do you extend to them? Uh, I think a good piece of advice is always people remember how you've made them feel, not necessarily what you've said. And I think that's such a valuable piece of advice Mm. um, because we all work on our emotions to some extent, don't we? And um, having a good level of emotional intelligence and being aware that how you behave can have a really big impact on other people. And the higher you go up in in an organization, the more impact you can have on other people. It's really good to get that right. But also as a human being, you have to recognize that you're never going to get that right 100% of the time. So you also have to find ways in which you can, A, forgive yourself when you haven't done things as well as you could have done. And also have mechanisms in which people realize that you're not faultless. And that makes you more human and more genuine and therefore more approachable. So you can use that as well to um, create the right kind of environment for people so that you're not creating blame cultures, you're creating a listening culture and you have to be part of that as well. So communication is absolutely key. Absolutely, yes. Now, looking at the uh, the wider scope of society and history, uh, if you had to choose objectively the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? <laughs> and probably that you've heard this many times in this series, but it would be Nelson Mandela. And and what was it about Mr. Mandela's uh, leadership that inspires you? I think you're looking at somebody who was incredibly passionate, um, a, a fantastic advocate for what he believed in, somebody who had an amazing level of resilience, somebody who could forgive um, and find ways to move on and bring people with him and bring people together. Um, and I don't think we've ever seen anybody like him Uh, and in a way I hope we don't create more people like him because part of that creation uh, was the awful experiences that he had around apartheid and being imprisoned and solitary confinement I hope we never do that to somebody again but those things created that amazing leader in, in many respects Well how do you take the lessons learned from Mandela and uh, apply it to your everyday life? Um, I think uh, one of the things that I've experienced since I've been here in this hospice has been um, around resilience. And um, and it's been about recognizing that things um, are very difficult uh, as a hospice trying to operate in an environment where there isn't enough money and we're underfunded, where you have to work with the resilience of other people around you to deliver really good services, where you think you're on a journey and you're doing really good things and um, maybe some funding is coming together and then another funder somewhere else decides that they don't want to fund you anymore, they want to fund a different charity. You have to be really, really resilient and wake up every day and think, 
today I've got to keep on this road. I've got to keep doing this because actually people need what I'm doing. Um, I don't have to do it on my own. I've got a really good team around me. But you're the leader of that team and you're the one that's got to keep them focused no matter what they feel like when they wake up in bed in the morning. And sometimes the way of doing that is to remind yourself of a family that you've recently met um, that's been through the worst of the worst but they've told you the difference that you've made to them and, you, and you've and you connected with that. And that's what you can hold on to when you're having a bad day. And Nelson Mandela must have had things that he held on to um, that made him continue on that road, no matter what happened to him. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to draw comparisons because what happened to him is 10 times worse or probably more than anything that's ever happened to me in this role here. But it's the same principle, isn't it, of, what are you going to connect into that keeps you going and keeps you on that no matter what obstacle gets in your way? Well, absolutely. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, unfortunately, one uh, obstacle that is a sticking point is time, and we are running out of yes. it very quickly. Um, but before I let you go, now, what is the plan for the next 12 months for Forget Me Not Children's Hospice? We've set out a plan to be trailblazers. We have some very unique services here. And what we've realized is that we can focus on those very unique services and become a leading light in our hospice movement around those services in particular. So one of the ways that we can grow without having any money is by um, blueprinting some services that other people can replicate. So that's what that's what our plan is. Well, Lewin, we're going to have to have you back on the show so we can hear more about that and uh, and how it's been achieved. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much once again for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Lewin Thompson, Chief Executive of Forget Me Not Children's Hospice. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure you're delighted that a certain someone is leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the... Party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she could reach out to people that others can't. So I'm, I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two... Uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. 
Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in. But how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's 
fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm -hmm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after week. No, I, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good About Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City... 
then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then five you lose 5-0 at, at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in the situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field... They walked instead of ran. They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously? And if you could answer that question, and there may have, something may have happened, who knows, something during the morning before the game started, something may have gone sour... You get the answer to that question, and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more... Uh, 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 people, uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her... One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world. You can pronounce on what you're going to do, but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies, by the way, and there is a tendency, a new Mm. prime minister, large majority, got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them, but get able people in. I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for mm. a, a, an easy morning television programme, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't do Without it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add, that is how uh, all Stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lee's Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people 
but again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether as leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, they, it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education... And employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Centre mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse and you don't get everything right that's the other thing you've got to recognize which is why being part of a broader team being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind that that that's the the measure and i think if we can share those traits those experiences those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions, perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the thirty first of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got, a, got off to a very, very um, strong start. I think, however, 
it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandy or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months... I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us today. God bless you, Jonathan. (laughs) This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.